Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Stalbridge. If this is your first time here, welcome. Thank you for, for being here, and we hope that you feel welcome. We'd ask one thing of you this morning, and that is if you take time to fill out the connection card, which you can find inside your bulletin, we'd be glad to hear from you how you found out about Southbridge. And you can take that card to the first-time guest kiosk where we have uh, a gift for you. If this is your home church, welcome. Welcome home. We're glad that you're here. We uh, know that uh, Memorial Day weekend is a time a lot of people go away, but it seems like there's people here, and I'm grateful. And I do want to make a mention, too, that we know that Memorial Day is a time where we consider and remember those that have given their lives uh, for our country and for um, the freedoms that we have. And if you um, are, uh, have served or you've related to someone that you, you lost a loved one, I just wanted to, to, to say that we're grateful and we're, we're thankful and um, didn't want to miss that opportunity. So I hope that you feel um, appreciated through words this morning. And um, this morning, we're going to continue on in our series, the study of Acts, which we've called Movement. I have a question for you as we get started. Have you ever heard this phrase before when someone says this, I live for this? What was the this in that context? I live for this, or this is what I was you know, made to do, or this is what I'm, uh, I was born for this. Pretty heavy statements. What was the this? What would your answer be? What do you live for? I found an online discussion group where people were sharing the answers to this question, and the answers varied, of course. Several answers were uh, adventure, academic achievement, baseball, video games, drumming, uh, rapping was one. Not rapping Christmas presents, uh, but rapping like putting words together. See, rapping is... Never mind. Other answers included, um, I live for myself, or I live for family, I live for a spouse, I live to live was an answer, I live to love was another. One person alarmingly wrote, I live because I am too scared of pain to take my life, so music, I guess. I thought that was heavy. There, you know, in my life, when I think about the question, there are things that I really like, but I don't know if I'd say I live for it. For instance, I like playing basketball on a hoop that's two feet short, making me seven foot nine, and playing against people that are shorter than me. I find great joy from that. I also enjoy putting Hershey's chocolate syrup on Frosted Flakes. I don't know if it's awesome. Don't criticize me. It's awesome. And it turns the milk chocolate. You know what? Just use chocolate milk too. Yeah. Um, I really like going out to eat with my friends. I love to laugh so hard that I throw up. And it's happened four times. And I want to get there. You just got to have funny stuff, folks. That's a good kind of throw up. I love Christmas movies and I love to quote them and I love to start around the end of October to the January 1st. These are things that I like. I say I love them. I use that word love too generously though, don't I? Don't you? What would, you, what would your answer to the question be, what do you live for? I don't know if I'd say those are the things that I live for. Now thinking differently, what about this question? A little heavier, but in the same train of thought here, what would you die for? For what or who would you die? A college forum I came across asked the same question, and people said things like this, for family or for friends. One person wrote down the defenseless, defenseless, which is noble. Another person put for national freedoms, and of course this weekend is one in which we think about those things. Um, and this was a college forum, and so another one of the answers was, I would die for another slice of pizza. <laughs> That's a pretty low view of life. I don't know if you eat it after you die somehow or before. What would your answer be? What would you die for? The answers are, the questions are somewhat linked and the answers would be linked too. And today's text forces me to think about such questions of life. 
The last two weeks, we've been continuing on our series in the book of Acts called Movement, and we've come to learn about a gentleman named Stephen who was one of a handful of people that were selected to help take care of the Grecian Jewish widows. There were so many people involved now in this new church, the followers of Jesus Christ, that then some needs were going unmet. So the apostles selected, uh, with the help of others, a handful of folks, a handful of guys that were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to help meet real needs. And one of the people that was chosen, one of the guys chosen, was a man named Stephen. We come to learn in time that Stephen was a bold preacher. He did miracles. God did miraculous things through him. And the local religious crowd, the leaders of the religious movement, the Jewish movement, were really against it. In fact, there was a time where there was great debate, and no one could debate with him. They couldn't answer his answers. And he was working with them, thinking through the Old Testament as they would have, as their word, and showing how Jesus Christ is the way. He's the fulfillment of all that they hoped for. And yet the crowd could not believe. They would not believe. And we're growing in anger and resentment towards Stephen, this one who was saying that Jesus was the promised one. And last week we learned that basically he had preached a strong message to this crowd. The crowd is getting angrier. In a sense, his message was this. Your religion is one of self-worship, <laughs> not God-worship. So keeping in mind and knowing that we're still looking at the life of Stephen, I want to remember the idea of what would we live for, what would you die for? And if you're looking at um, today's scriptures, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7. So let's turn there together, Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read our whole text this morning because we're going to go all the way through um, chapter 8, verse 4. So Acts chapter uh, 7, verse 54 is our start. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, I'm going to read the whole thing. And then we're going to put up the scriptures verse to verse eventually here on the screen. But listen carefully. Here's our text. And we can divide the sections of this text today um, for those that are outline inclined to looking at Stephen's profession, his persecution, and his prayer. And then there's a postscript we'll look at. Here's verse 54. When he had said this, meaning talking about how their religion is one of self-worship, not worship of the Lord, that they deny the Holy Spirit is what he told them. They, the crowd, were furious and gnashed at their teeth. That word gnashed to me sounds like automatopoeia. Gnash, 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 gnash. It means angry. Okay. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, which is a reference made by Jesus Christ of himself, that he is the Messiah. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he fell on his knees, they cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a common way in the New Testament to say that um, someone died. He died. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, on the same day that Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. The church is anyone that proclaims Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is the sent one, the promised one, the Savior of the world, and God himself. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. When I read this, I think to myself, would I be willing, would I be willing to experience such? Don't you? There's much to be said about this, about this text. What would get someone in this situation? What would you do in this situation? How would you get through this situation? Would you ever be in this kind of situation? 
We can learn about persecution. We can learn about how to endure suffering. We can learn about faith. There's so much to say. But when I look at this and I put my life into this passage, just thinking about what would I do, I think to myself, would I be willing to experience such? Would I love Jesus enough to die for his namesake? What would you die for? Would I love others enough that while experiencing their hatred would die telling them the truth? What would, what would you die for? See, I think the answer to that question is found in the answer to the first question we considered today, and that is, what do I live for? What do you live for? Do I live for the sake of Christ? And I was thinking this week that the likelihood of me dying for Christ if I'm not living for his renown is essentially non-existent. So what does living for Christ mean? I mean, I would never be in the position to die for Christ unless someone accused me of living for him. Isn't that right? But do I live for him? What would I die for? What does it mean living for Christ? Here is a definition to think about over the next several days or the rest of our lives, either or. Living for Christ means living in such a way that the gospel informs one's thoughts, motives, actions, and reactions in life. Living for Christ means living in such a way that the gospel informs one's, you could say my, yours, thoughts, motives, actions, and reactions in life. So in light of our text then, it's Stephen's life that was informed by the gospel that led to his willingness to suffer and die. So let's look at it again. We'll go section by section. First we see here just his profession of faith, his profession of Jesus being the way. Look at verse 54 again. When they heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So the crowd has heard the message. The crowd has heard that Stephen and they disagree. They are at an impasse. Stephen had said basically in the verses preceding this, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put in effect through angels have not obeyed it. That's what they just heard. And they're angry. It'd be like someone telling you that you're wrong. And people don't like that, do they? Do you like that? (laughs) Everyone thinks they're right, don't they? The religious leaders are are enraged. They're furious. This word for enraged here, furious, it means to be sawn through the heart. You're killing us, Stephen. You are saying opposite of truth is what they would say. And we've seen this kind of anger before, actually, in this book, in Acts chapter 5, verse uh, starting around verse 29, when Peter and John are uh, commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and they said, we understand you, but we've got to obey God. And then the text says they got angrier. They can't make someone do what they want them to do. Do you struggle with that kind of anger? Right? Anger is when your goal is blocked. And what is their goal for Stephen? For him to stop. And for them to be right. The scriptures warn against such a heart because they're acting hard-hearted. And in Hebrews chapter 3, which I believe is written to believers, the book of Hebrews, so encouraging believers with harden not your hearts, don't be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin lest you obtain an evil heart of unbelief 
And we struggle with unbelief, don't we? We believe certain things, but we, we struggle. This is why when we see the man who's desiring healing for their child said to Jesus, I, if you can help, I would love to help if I can help. And the man says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. We've known up to this point that basically Stephen's faith is on trial. He is on trial. His faith in Christ is on trial. His belief is on trial. And the author here, Luke, who's the same author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of Acts, points out an interesting, I think, an interesting, interesting contrast in sharing that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, our text says. He's showing the hearts of the people and the heart of Stephen. He's showing the inner motives and desires of the people and the same for Stephen. And by writing that down, what Luke is asking for his recipients of this letter to understand is that Stephen is right. The crowd is not full of the Spirit. Stephen is and in perfect timing, as God's timing is, not our timing, but perfect timing, Stephen experiences God's grace in a unique way, doesn't he? We just read it. A vision, a, a glimpse. He sees heaven open in the midst of the intensity of this moment. And he sees Christ, who he says is the Son of Man, which is a reference that Jesus used for himself. He's the sent one. The, uh, he's God in flesh, sent to be a ransom for many, the Redeemer of all mankind. And he sees him standing, standing at the right hand of the Father. This is a gift of grace in the midst of suffering. During the midst of his profession of his faith, this is a gift of grace so he can preserve, have perseverance at such a time. And I wondered, maybe you did when you first read it too today, I wondered why is Jesus standing instead of sitting at the right hand? Isn't that what we've come to learn is that Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for those, for you and I that are in Christ Jesus. In him, he prays for us. And this is interesting. And commentators um, give strong belief, give strong uh, statements toward why Christ would be standing at such a moment when, pe- when Stephen sees him standing. And it, it could be this, that Jesus is standing ready to receive Stephen that Jesus is standing ready to defend Stephen. And by the way, Jesus makes an awesome defense attorney. (laughs) Want to know why? Because he's smart. And he loves his people. And he's right. And he's a perfect judge. Defense attorney and judge. And we are not good at defending ourselves because our only defense when it comes to the life of Christ is Jesus. Why would Jesus defend Stephen? Because Stephen is living a life of faith and putting all his life into Christ's hands. So Jesus is standing. Some say that um, he's ready to uh, receive, ready to defend. Jesus says that whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And some say that's what he's ready to do. It's about time. It's about to happen. Stephen's getting a glimpse, and this is a glimpse of grace because it helps give him the perseverance to the end. And Jesus is ready so Stephen tells the crowd what he's experiencing. Now, if you were a friend of Stephen, at this point when things are going bad, would you encourage Stephen to say what he can see? Yeah, I know you can see things. Shh, covers, mother. I mean, seeing visions have gone badly for other people. Does anyone remember the story of Joseph? He has these visions from God, and he tells his brothers, and his brothers are like, that's cool. No, they don't. Nope. But Stephen tells them. He's professing who Jesus is. And he sees Jesus as he is. So the crowd, they don't see it. And even when they could see Jesus with their own eyes when he was on earth, they didn't believe it. Seeing is not believing. Believing is believing. And by this confession, by this profession, Stephen and Luke invite us to see Jesus for who he really is. And in that vision, then, to recognize him as worthy of worship, worthy to live for him, 
worthy uh, of complete devotion and obedience and life and unto death. This reminds me of another passage about our view of Jesus. It's written to believers. It's also in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. You might have this scripture hidden in your heart. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And it does, doesn't it? Do you have sin in your life that's got deep grip into you? There's freedom that's possible for you through Christ. He's willing. And this is going to be daily, isn't it? Daily throwing these things off. (laughs) Daily saying no to temptation. The author of Hebrews is encouraging believers to be ready to do that, to say no, to throw things off, to get rid of the things that are hindering followership of Christ. Living for, what would you live for? Living for Christ. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, for you, individually, according to God's sovereignty. Look at verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And Stephen's doing this literally, isn't he? The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand. There's the sat down language that we've come to learn. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. Consider him, that's Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The truth is that in this life you will have trouble. The scriptures tell us that anyone that desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. The scriptures promise suffering to those that want to live for Christ. So how can we get through it? The command here is just like Jesus' command. You will, in this life you will trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, and you're with me. How can Stephen get through it? How would I ever get through it is what I think to myself when I look at the scriptures. And the answer is, Jesus will be with you. And Stephen gets a glimpse. Stephen literally fulfills this command of fixing his eyes on Jesus. So Stephen's view of and faith in Christ sets him on a mission. So he boldly proclaims the truth, serves others, willingly engages the world around him. It's the gospel that's informing Stephen's life in the midst of opposition. And it's Jesus that is sustaining him. Yesterday I took... um, my daughter, Mia, who's nine, out to breakfast. We do this every once in a while. Usually around like when she loses a tooth, it's like our celebration. I take her to some place that will help her lose more teeth. I take her to McDonald's. And um, she's going to be really easy to please for any future suitor because she thinks like going to McDonald's is awesome and going to the grocery store. We have real low-level things, so making it easy. And I just started talking with her about the things of the Lord, which the scriptures command parents to do, and I brought up this text, which is pretty heavy, I'm, I'm guessing for most nine-year-olds, and it was heavy for her. And I said, Mia, I'm sharing tomorrow with church, Lord willing, a, about a man who died because he's telling people about Jesus. And she says, that sounds bad. I said, I think it, it sounds kind of bad to me. I think Stephen might think it's wonderful. I said, do you think it would ever happen here where we live where people couldn't talk about Jesus? And she said, I don't know, honestly, like a nine-year-old might. I said, what would you do if we lived in a place that was like that? She said, I don't know. I would have to keep sharing. That's what she shared, like this kind of head shake. I would have to keep sharing. I said, that's incredible. I said, um, I'm af- wouldn't you be afraid? I would be afraid. And she said, yeah. I said, how do you think we can keep sharing Jesus and not be afraid? And she said, because Jesus will be with you. Ah, that's a biblically informed answer. So if anyone that works in Bridge Kids that helps teach our children the scripture, thank you for doing that. That's what the scriptures say. 
But take heart, I have overcome the world and I am with you. Do not let your heart be troubled, I am with you. And Stephen gets this opportunity. See, thinking about our own lives now, how the gospel, how does the gospel inform your life? When you say, I'm going to live for Jesus, what does that look like in the everydayness of your life? Because a lot of us aren't facing this kind of suffering. We face suffering, but maybe not this kind. So let's ask some questions because maybe you aren't really suffering right now. Maybe some of you are and you have hard circumstances in life and that counts as suffering. But what about this then? How does the gospel inform your role in your marriage? If your spouse is being a jerk, I use the word doink. If your spouse is being a doink, and all of us are prone to doinkdom, how do you respond? They're not doing what you want them to do. How do you respond? How does the gospel inform your parenting style? I raise my voice too much. God, help me not to do that. The Lord is a perfect heavenly father. There's much to learn about parenting. How does the gospel inform your response to plans not going your way? Hmm. Yesterday, or two days ago, I went to the grocery store. And when I've been going to the grocery store lately, I choose the longest line to wait in. And the reason is, is because I'm trying to partner with the Holy Spirit to ask, help, have him help develop patience in my life. <laughs> so I don't have to come up with harder things. And I'm not thinking about where the alternate me would be if I beat myself. I'm just staying in this line and I'm talking to the Lord. Well, the other day I left a little gap between me and the next person because there was an aisle going this way. And this sweet lady walked up and stood right. I'm working on patience, okay? <laughs> and this lady comes and stands right there. I've got a cart full of five kids worth of lunches. And How does the gospel inform my response? I just, just take it to the Lord and say, you're hilarious. <laughs> you're funnier than me. How does the gospel inform your conduct in public and in private? How does the gospel inform your work ethic? The Apostle Paul writes, I think, to some new believers, hey, work hard in such a way that non-believers praise God for how hard you work. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? That somehow they come to know Christ because you're so diligent? Wow. How does the gospel inform your love for others? How does your gospel inform your view of those that cause harm? Hmm. See, that would be a way to live for Christ. Stephen's in this moment because he's been living for Christ. He would never face such circumstances if he wasn't just amplifying Christ. Yet he did, and here he is. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus and view our circumstances through the lens of the gospel, we start seeing, thinking, and behaving like Jesus. But things get a little more intense here for Stephen. So we've looked at his profession. Let's look at this persecution now he suffers. The next section here, verse 57. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, which is the introduction of a new person. And Saul is someone that we come to learn about for the rest of the book of Acts. That's strategically placed here. So at Stephen's testimony and at him having this vision, they're even more livid if that's possible. They plug their ears, and I always imagine like a child, blah, 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 blah. They started yelling over his voice. And the reason why they did this, you may be interested in knowing, is because they had a belief that if they ever heard blasphemy, it had come into ears. They don't want to be guilty before God of entertaining it in their minds. So they're blocking their ears and shouting over what they think are the blasphemous statements so they don't become guilty of entertaining blasphemy themselves. 
But we see another contrast here. So before we saw the contrast of a hard heart and then a heart that's filled with the Holy Spirit, here we see another one. What is glorious to Stephen is blasphemous to the crowd. Jesus says it's amazing. Or I mean, Stephen says it's amazing that he's seen Christ in such a way. And the crowd is saying, you're wrong in how you see Jesus. And we're going to stop you. See, the tension is high for the crowd. And just to give you some more understanding about the crowd's view, if Stephen is right, then they are condemned. But they are sincerely believing that Stephen has just now confirmed, affirmed his blasphemous ways. They sincerely believe that, yet they're sincerely wrong. See, a lot of people teach today that if you're sincere about something, then God's cool with that. Not if you're op- you're, in your sincerity, your belief is opposite God. That would be wrong. And Luke, the author of God's word in the book of Acts here, is trying to showcase that contrast. They're angry. They don't see it. They don't see what Stephen sees. They don't believe what Stephen believes. And they're waiting for the Messiah still, but the Messiah has already come. See, the scriptures speak of people not understanding the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 28, verse 26, quoting the prophet Isaiah, we read that you will ever be hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Old Testament, New Testament says the same. You're hearing the gospel, not seeing it. And I, I struggle sometimes to wonder, we have folks that come week after week after week, and our lead pastor, uh, Scott Lear, he preaches the gospel week after week because we all need it. Believers and non-believers need to be informed by the gospel, so we'll never get tired of it, and we'll always proclaim Christ as the way, the truth, and the life here. But how can someone hear these things over and over again and see the testimonies of people whose lives have been changed from the inside out and say, no, no, no. And that's what this crowd has experienced. They saw Christ and they rejected Christ. They saw his miracles and said no to them. They saw the apostles and said no to the message. They've seen Stephen and they're saying no to the message. Their hearts are becoming hardened. They want what they want when they want it. And they're waiting for a different Messiah, not the one that this crowd is, uh, the small crowd, the new church is following. Verse 57 tells us that the crowd takes Stephen out of the city and stones him. They had to. They either had to kill Stephen or admit that they were wrong in killing Christ. Had to. You see their issue then, right? You see the crowd's view? Let me talk to you a little bit about stoning, what I've come to learn about it. Levitical law, in Leviticus 24, tells us a bit about it. It says that stoning someone must happen outside the city, so they did. Leviticus 24, 16 says that stoning was the punishment for blasphemy, and that is the accusation made here against Stephen. The law also said that there must be at least two witnesses. Now the crowd was all witnesses because Stephen had just verified that he believes that Jesus is at the right hand of God and is God himself. And stoning was an intense process, and it wasn't always easy. People prepared themselves for their work. They would remove the outer garments to the inner garments and give them to somebody to watch over them, just as we see in our scripture here with Saul watching over the stuff. And We'll get back to Saul in a moment. So you may wonder then, well, how did they stone them? That's what I wondered. I used to always think as a kid growing up in church when people talked about stoning, I always thought it was about people would stand in a circle and throw, but what if people have bad aim? Then you're hitting the person you're not trying to hit. Some of us have bad aim. I don't think they stood in a circle. The Mishnah, which is the Jewish codification of law, says that the one to be stoned should be dropped from a place that's about twice the height of a man, 10 to 12 feet high, and should be on a place that's above a rocky um, place, a precipice, then below is a rocky place with rocks below. Then one of the witnesses pushes the criminal off the cliff, off this high place, so that the criminal falls face forward onto the rocks. 
And then the crowd would come down to that rocky place and turn the criminal over onto his back. And then this is what the Mishnah says. If he dies from the fall, that is sufficient. If not, the second witness takes a large stone and drops it on his heart. If, he, if that causes death, it is sufficient. If not, he is then stoned by all the congregation of Israel. So Stephen is experiencing suffering. <clears throat> and the truth is, in some measure, we will, this will be true for all those that follow Christ. Maybe not the same kind of suffering, but suffering. It's promised in Scripture that those who attempt to live a godly life will be persecuted, and we ought not be surprised. And I think to myself, would I be willing? Would I be willing? And the answer is, what do you live for? What would you die for? Does the gospel inform your life in such a way that you would be faced with such an end? The Apostle Peter writes to encourage believers about suffering and that we shouldn't be surprised by it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participated in such sufferings for Christ. Stop there for a moment. This is a special kind of person that rejoices in such harm, isn't it? And yet we see it over and over again by the Christians in the Bible. Over and over and over again. When the apostles, as um, Scott taught us a couple weeks ago, were flogged for preaching Christ, they walked out and encouraged each other. Like, we got through that and we counted a joy to suffer for Christ. Wow. Rejoice that you may participate in the sufferings for Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. That's the promise there of his presence with you. Verse 15, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. You've been adopted into the family of God and you wear his name. See, suffering is a part of following Jesus. Jesus suffered and so will we. So according to scripture, suffering because of living for Christ is a blessing. And Jesus said, blessed are those that are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In my life, I largely seek to avoid pain. Is anybody else like that? You're not interested in pain? That's me. I might be weird. I don't, go, I don't like going to the dentist. I do go, but I hate it and I dig my hand. I want them to have a new chair when I, when I have to leave because I wrecked it. I avoid being not liked. Um, I avoid sharks. This morning I just thought, had a first thought, I'd hate not being liked by a shark because that means I'm not liked, he didn't want to eat me, and I have to face him. Hmm. I avoid uh, running short and long distances at all costs. I, I avoid the pain of the loss of a friendship. I do whatever it takes to make sure we're still friends. Could be masked codependency. I don't like pain or potential pain, yet obedience to Christ usually, usually will result in some form of suffering. Later on, Paul writes about how he suffers for all the churches. He's, he uses the word anxious. He's anxious for all the churches he helped plant. He really cares for people. And so what happens is Christians who have not a good sense of a, a theology of suffering, we try to encourage people to avoid that, not care so much for people. That's their problems. But that's not Jesus' style. There's a pastor 
You may have read about him or heard about him. Pastor Saeed is Iranian-American. He's been in prison in Iran for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Iran believes it's a threat to their um, culture and context. And so they've imprisoned him for such a time um, until he repents, which he says he's not going to repent. And people continue to send him notes. Somehow he's allowed to have correspondence. He's in solitary confinement, often just released recently, but not released from prison in total. And people ask him about the suffering, and he writes, The reality of Christian living is that difficulties or problems do arise in our lives. Persecution and difficulties are not new occurrences. He's saying exactly what Peter says. Don't be surprised about these things, but are seen often in the Christian life. It is through the suffering and tribulations that we are to enter the kingdom of God. That's Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those that are persecuted. His answers to suffering are biblically informed, and he's suffering because his life was biblically informed. His life was informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you live for, Pastor? I live to make Christ known. So people write, how can we pray for you? We're praying for you, praying for you. And he writes, please pray for my captors. See, that's very Jesus of him, isn't it? Who prays for people that harm them? People that are full of the Holy Spirit. That's the truth. People that are living for Christ. When the gospel informs our lives, it causes us to see suffering, trial, persecution, and the persecutors differently. And the grace of the gospel was evident even then in Stephen's final prayers. Look at, look at this last part, the prayer. So we've looked at his profession. We've looked at the persecution. We're looking at a prayer here. While they were stoning him, verse 59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What are the two things that Stephen prayed for, loved ones? Did you catch it? What's the first one? Just say it out loud. It's okay. We're friends. So he wanted to be received. He's calling out to the one that can receive him. He wants to be with Christ. He wants to be face-to-face with Christ. He's fixed his eyes on Jesus. His life is about Jesus, but now he wants to be with him. And he's going to the one that can save him. Save me unto yourself. And what's the second thing he prayed for? Did you catch it? He prays for others. He prays for others. Jesus asked God to receive his spirit when he's on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And it's Luke who's the same author of this book here, the book of Acts. And for God not to hold this suffering, this mocking, this persecution, the crucifixion, he asked the Father not to hold that against his killers. Let's ask this question of ourselves. What would you pray for? It's hard to put ourselves in this scenario, but think about who you really are. And let me be honest with you, if we're allowed. Mine would be this. Get me out of here. Have vengeance. And we know prophets of old in the Old Testament, one prophet was uh, stoned and he asked for God to avenge him, to kill his people. We know that King David, who was really tight with the Lord, a man after God's own heart, says, revenge, take care of my enemies, over and over again. But Stephen is, something's unique about him, very much like the apostles, very much like Jesus. Why would he pray for forgiveness of those that are harmed? Because there's still hope for them that they might come to know Christ. <laughs> Don't we play sometimes a a role where we decide who's good enough to be in or out? Those people are too naughty. They hurt people. They don't deserve to be in. I'm not as bad as them, so I deserve to be in. No, no. No one's going to heaven because they're awesome. They go to heaven because Jesus is awesome. Sinners go to heaven. But sinners who acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life and was the atoning sacrifice for their life. And Stephen prays for these people because there's still hope for them. And why would he pray such? Because his death is being informed by the gospel, just as Christ's was. And we've shared here at Southbridge how the Spirit enables people to do things like this over and over again. Where spouses forgive a 
a harmful spouse and there's a reconciliation and a miracle takes place. How families who are divided find a way to bring forgiveness to the table and reconciliation takes place over and over and over again. The scriptures tell us that he fell asleep. That means he died. He confronted the world boldly. He said the things that needed to be said even though they were painful, even though they hurt and they killed him. When one is really against life's most difficult circumstances, the best or worst of a person is revealed, isn't it? In the toughest moments, how do you live? I'm asking the Lord to help eradicate pessimism from my life. Not the power of positive thought, but to see things through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's redeeming things unto himself, that anything is redeemable when he's in it. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Does the gospel inform your response to the circumstances around you? You want to be married, but you aren't. You want to have children, but you can't. Your children aren't living in a way that you want them to live. You can't find work and you've looked for a long time and you feel like you're being rejected and have no value because you don't have a job. How does, how does the gospel inform those circumstances? There is a view, and it does matter. And it would bring life to your soul, and there's a ripple effect of people that live, for people that live with the gospel informing their life, there's a ripple effect of blessing others. The chief blessing would be that others would come to know Christ or hear the gospel. So I'm humbled when I read the life of, and death of Stephen, aren't you? He's so much like Jesus. Jesus was full of spirit, and so was Stephen. Jesus was full of grace, and so was Stephen. Jesus was a bold preacher, and so was Stephen. Jesus was lovingly forgiving, and so was Stephen. Jesus gave his life for others, and so did Stephen. So our response in the toughest moments of life reveal what we truly believe. How has your faith been evident or lacking in life's most difficult circumstances? Is it time to ask God for more faith? Stephen lived this day with Christ-likeness, and he died in Christ-likeness. And he's with the king. He's okay. What do you live for? What would you die for? There's a postscript here. It's the beginning of chapter 8, and I'll read it for us, the first four verses. On that day, so the same day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Yes. But Saul began to destroy the church. Your translation might say ravage, and that would be a word picture for Luke's original recipients to see. It means an animal that's tearing through its prey. That's what Saul's doing. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. So Stephen's death created a movement of violence and persecution against many, and many Christians uh, left town. And we read that Saul is spearheading the work. Some people believe that Saul was the most excited about Stephen stoning because he was the one that was debating with Stephen in the synagogue at Sicilia. People wonder about that and debate that. And Saul's very smart and knows the law. Some people believe that Saul could never shake, though, what happened to Stephen. It was Augustine, I believe, that says that the church owes Stephen because of Paul. And so we see here is that Saul is the one that's starting all this commotion and pushing forward and approving of it. 
But we know something happens to Saul's life. In time, Saul experiences the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by God's will, we'll come to learn more about this as we keep studying. He is born again in time. He starts living for Christ. The gospel starts informing his life and eventually his death. And he's even given a new name. Saul's name becomes what, do you know? Paul, yep. And so Paul later writes of desiring to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, like Stephen, and becoming like Christ even in death. Some people think that Paul could never shake Stephen's death. And God used it, redeemed what men meant for evil. God redeems for good. That's the song we sang this morning. Suffering and persecution appear to be a catalyst for evangelism. The last verse we read said that wherever every Christians went, people started preaching. And so somehow someone preached to someone who preached to someone. They accepted Christ, accepted Christ, and someone accepted Christ and eventually preached to you the gospel or shared the gospel with you. And you said yes, Lord willing. That's probably because persecution broke out. If this kind of suffering and persecution started here, like I was talking about with Mia yesterday, would you be accused of being a Jesus follower? And I don't, I don't mean that judgmentally, like I know, if you, and I know all the, you evaluate it with the power of the Holy Spirit yourself. I wondered, do I live in such a way that the gospel informs my life that observers would say, get him, he's like Jesus. Sometimes, maybe, is my answer. What's yours? I want it to be true, but I don't. The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, also wrote in Philippians chapter 1 to a new church that he helped start, for to me to live is Christ. My life is informed by the gospel. How I view life, how I view others, how I view circumstances is through the lens of the gospel, for the glory of Christ. For me to live, living means glorifying Christ. And to die, well, that means I get to be with him. But I will wait for the Lord to bring me home in the manner in which he wants to bring me home. What do you live for? What would you die for? Let's pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, Stephen. And his testimony, and we praise you for that. We know that Stephen is not our Savior, but because you were his Savior, he was willing to be bold with the gospel, loving people enough to tell them the truth and suffer any consequence. And Lord, I thank you that he's with you. Lord, would you give us a faith? Would you give us a supernatural ability to trust in you, to trust in what you say, to remember the promises that you'll be with us in times of suffering and trial, whatever they may be? sickness and trouble and discord with others, Lord, Lord, that we would trust in you. And Lord, give us ability by your grace, a love that can only come from you so that others would experience that love through us. Give us a perspective that's informed by the gospel so that we may live on a promise as opposed to living pessimistically, that we would trust in your power and strength to redeem all things for your glory. Lord, give us a community of believers around us that will encourage us to throw off the things so easily entangle us, that get us Hold us back from freely following you, Lord. Help us find that kind of biblical community with other believers, that the word would inform our encouragement of one another and that the spirit would do his work, building us up, sanctifying us at your pace, Father, for your glory and for the sake of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name.